Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 162. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to discuss 2019's Descendants 3. We've spent the last couple of weeks dissecting the Descendants franchise. We were promised after the first one they got better as they went along. The second one was better than the first. So I must ask you, Jackie, seeing as the second one did step itself up in regards to this franchise, you know, as a whole. How excited were you to sit and finally watch Descendants 3? I wouldn't say that I was excited for it, but I definitely had bigger expectations than I did going into the first two. What about you? I think my expectations were that not only was this going to be better than the first two, but it was going to be slightly mature, uh, slightly more mature than the first two. Not that the first two were immature by any stretch of the imagination, but we talked last week about how the second movie seemed to grow with its target audience. We compared it to how Halloween Town tried to do it very well. It's just that as the sequels went on, they got worse and worse. So I'm curious to see if this grows up with the target demographic, and if they nail an epic conclusion to what was a global phenomenon, that is what we are here to discuss today. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. It's VK Day on the aisle, and Evie, Mal, Carlos, and Jay arrive to invite new hopefuls to join them in Auradon. Dizzy Tremaine, Squeaky and Squirmy Smee, and Celia Facilier are all chosen to attend school in Auradon. Meanwhile, Mal remains fearful that Uma will attack Auradon at any time. In front of our, uh, all of Auradon, Ben proposes to Mal, who accepts, making Audrey and her grandmother furious. As the new VKs are brought to Auradon, Hades attempts to break through the barrier, but Mal fights him off, although she says that Hades, using an ember, tried to steal her magic, and came very close, actually. That night, Audrey steals the Evil Queen's crown and Maleficent's scepter from the museum and sets her sights on taking over Auradon. Upon hearing these artifacts were stolen, Mal suggests closing the barrier forever, a plan that she isn't completely forthcoming about with Evie or the rest of the VKs. Audrey, using the scepter, turns Mal into an old hag, and the only thing that can reverse the curse is Hades' ember. Audrey then puts everyone to sleep at Jane's birthday party, except for Jane, who hid in the Enchanted Lake and called Ben to warn him. Back on the aisle, they learn of what Audrey has done, and Mal and Celia pursue the ember, and we learn that Hades is also Mal's father. He reluctantly gives her the ember, but warns it won't work the same for her as it does for him, and that she should not get it wet. In Auradon, Audrey tells Ben if he makes her 
her the queen, she will reverse her curse. Refusing her offer, Audrey turns him into a beast and the citizens of Auradon into stone, at least the ones that hadn't been put to sleep. On the Isle, Uma gets the ember with help from Harry and Gil. Uh, Mal guarantees any VK can leave the Isle in exchange for the Ember and agrees to let Uma, Harry, and Gil join them in saving Auradon. In the woods, Jay, Harry, Gil, Carlos, and Dude find Ben in beast form. Meanwhile, Evie, Mal, Uma, and Celia find Doug asleep, but Evie wakes him with true love's kiss. Ben has a splinter in his hand that Carlos removes. Jane arrives and sprays enchanted water on Ben, breaking the spell. As time goes on, Mal and Uma make amends, and Uma eventually gives Mal the ember. Mal comes clean about her lie, promising that the VKs will continue to come off the aisle, leading Celia to toss the ember into a birdbath, ending its power. Everyone turns on Mal before being turned into stone. This is at least the the core four. It's the three other VKs plus Ben. Audrey takes Celia hostage, and Uma joins Mal in reigniting the Ember. Mal defeats Audrey and saves Celia. Everyone is awoken except Audrey, who can only be awoken by Hades. He wakes her and apologize, and then she apo- uh, apologizes to everyone for what she did. Hades then gives Mal the ember to keep for herself. At their engagement party, Mal tells everyone that she can't be queen of just Auradon and turn her back on the Isle, and says that everyone is capable of both good and bad. So Ben agrees to take down the barrier forever, and I suppose we all live in a happily ever after while we dance one more time. <laughs> so, um, okay. <laughs> there's, there's a lot to break down here. Um, go break ahead. Breakdown yes. is a great way to put it because you and I both like the second one a lot more than the first. Yeah. And I feel like we came leaps and bounds with the story. And in the first Three to five minutes of this film, we just knocked down the house of cards that we built. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the music later on. But, but there but is go- a lot going on in this scene yeah. that I do want to talk about because it it does set up the rest of the film. Yeah. All right. So then I'm going to let you bat lead off here and, and discuss what we're going to discuss. Because the thing is, I feel like this movie almost more than the other two has so much plot rooted in music um, that we are going to discuss the music shortly. So I'm going to let you bat lead off and discuss this opening scene and everything that happens. Uh, So I like what they're doing here where they're renaming the houses and streets after the four original VKs. Yeah. I think that's nice that the aisle is acknowledging that they've given back. I feel like there should have been a little bit more of a time jump because to okay to put up a sign doesn't take very long but for the original vks to have established so many things like a home for i guess what carlos has is like a home for the lost boys so to speak right um it seems like there are more than just buildings and roads going on that there are more programs so i feel like that would have taken a while for the four of them to do And what really sets it back is that we already knew they were taking Dizzy and she's not even there yet. I kind of feel like that just happened. So 
they're making it seem like a week has gone by, but I feel like as far as all of this signage and everything else going on, it should have been stretched out a little bit more. And I had mentioned last week that it really would have benefited the film to establish more for more parameters for Ben choosing who was coming over to the aisle. And that would have gone a long way here because we already knew they were taking Dizzy. So why does she count as the four? It kind of seems counterintuitive to what they're trying to build. I thought they were taking Dizzy because Evie wanted that. Evie saw the good in her. Evie thought she belonged. And based on the end of the second one, I thought they were just bringing more kids over on merit and not focusing so much on the number. Well, I yeah, I mean that that's not terribly clear at the end of the second movie. I mean, yeah, they they kind of clear it up here where they're only going to take four at a time. I don't care that they're taking four at a time. <clears throat> Excuse me. So much as it is that to your point, it seems like we are literally picking up where we left off at the end of the second movie and the end of the second movie kind of picks up only a couple of months after the end of the first movie. So you have Ben, he's the king. He's got this budding relationship with Mal, who he has now proposed to. This all seems like it happened in less than six months. And that kind of implies that they're still 16 years old. Right, because... The other thing is VK Day is a holiday now. So you would think that would happen on the anniversary, meaning annually. Yeah. And tonally, this film does start to shift where it does start to break out of a lot of the high school tropes that caused so many problems with the first one, which is wonderful. But because so much is still happening at Oradon Prep, you never completely broke free of it. So the proposal seems a little early, not just as far as their relationship and their age, but I also feel like it comes so early on in the film. I feel like it would have been so much better earned at the end. As cheesy and as expected as that would be to have that be the grand finale, I feel like as far as Mal and Ben's relationship goes... They needed one more big thing to overcome. And what I will say that I really love that this movie did is that it completely deviated from the high school musical. Troy and Gabriella are going to break up in every single movie and get back together and make the reunion be this the thing that they're building to. Right. Here, it's such a big... You know, Mal has had such huge character arcs, and they do it again in that this is about her truly finding herself... And issues with her chosen family as opposed to being about her relationship. Well, I think that's why you really couldn't hold their engagement until the end of the movie. Because something that I think they did, did do really well here is Mal not being forthcoming with her friends, with that chosen family, about the barrier being closing forever uh, or closed forever, closing, closed forever, and it's been a long day. Uh, I got chosen in my mind. It's being closed <laughs> forever, and specifically the scene where she's talking to Evie about it, and she leads 
Evie on to believe that it was Belle the Beast and Ben who are suggesting this. And she says, when you're queen, you'll fight back against this. And Mal does nothing to correct her. And what that does, I think, is set up sort of an interesting plot twist because her ride and die from the start, the person for two movies prior to this that she was always up front with, could always rely upon, was Evie. And now you're starting to see that she is even willing to lie to her. And I get what you're saying about holding the big reveal to the end, because let's be real, sitting here in the first five minutes, oh, you know they're just going to, eventually the barrier's coming down forever. So it's it doesn't take a genius to figure out how the movie's going to end. But I don't know that this movie carries enough weight if you don't plant this early and have her lie to Evie as the incoming queen who's not thinking about the VKs, who's not thinking about the Isle, she's starting to really consider Auradon and Auradon alone. And I, I think as you watch the movie as the audience, you carry the weight, you carry the burden that Mal carries the entire film. And I think it's just too big of a piece to lose if you hold the engagement to the end. I guess I'm thinking more in terms of Mal has struggled with believing in herself, having everybody believe that she is more than her past. And I think it would have been so much more interesting to leave her as the lady of the court. And this would have been her first big decision to prove that she is now worthy of being queen. Yeah, good which, point. Which it is because she's not the queen yet, but... That's what I mean when I say the engagement would have felt more earned because we know that Ben loves her. We know that Ben is going to do this, but this would prove that she is ready, fully ready to step into this role, especially because in the last film, that was something that she struggled with. Um, I'm glad you brought up the scene with Evie. I love that scene especially when you think back to where they were in the second one. You said that Evie was her ride or die. She has literally supported Mal through everything, not just the big change with coming to Oridon from the aisle, but even when Mal was going to go back and made the decision to go back, Evie didn't try to sway her. She let Mal do what she thought would make her friend happy and just supported her. It's what she's done the entire time. And, they have that great line in scene where she was like, I'm so happy you're going to be part of these conversations. That's like a knife to the heart. It's, it's great writing. Uh, it's a great moment for those two. And like you said, it definitely puts us in Mal's POV to see what she's going to struggle with for the rest of the film. I think it adds a really interesting layer, not just to the friendship, but to Mal's character because we've seen her struggle with can I do this before but now we see this almost start going to her head because when the VKs are leaving the aisle for the first time and they say we're going to come back to get the next four Mal says we're going to be coming back so often you're going to be sick of us and I thought that was so uncharacteristic of her it's almost a character a characterization that Uma would make about her. 
And I think that's something that can be said for Mal this entire time is that she has never been caught up in her own hype. She's been overwhelmed by the stress of being in a relationship with Ben, not because of Ben, but because of everything else that means and because she's going to be a royal now. And she may have been confused, but she always has been true to herself. So I thought that was just a really patronizing line, but this scene with Evie does give it a little bit more context because now she's going to start falling victim to her lies. Talking about a character that perhaps takes a bit of a step backwards, to me, is Audrey. It's not that I don't buy her as a villain in this movie, but she reminds me too much of Sharpay. That, okay, I'm an antagonist because yes. And then the first movie ends, and we're all going to sing and dance, and we're all friends, and now I'm an antagonist again because yes. Like, the whole the whole point of her being Fury, I understand you had to get her to the point of being a villain, and we'll discuss whether or not that worked in a few minutes here because I have some thoughts on that. Um, I understand you had to get her to that point. You needed something to sort of push her over the edge. My question is, did it need to be her? Because my big critique with High School Musical was always Sharpay, at the end of every movie, comes around and... I'm sorry I was mean, let's be friends. And then we're all by the, in this together. Yeah, and then by the time the next movie starts, she's forgotten about all of it until it's time to remember that we're all friends again. And then the third movie comes around and she forgot all of it, and now I have to remember it when it's time to be friends again. This was a character, Sharpay, that was I rendered her useless in high school musical because she never really learned her lesson. The only thing that makes Audrey different is the fact that she does apologize at the very end and she played such a minuscule role in the second movie she wasn't in it that's right she wasn't even in it um i guess you could get away with it i just don't like when they take characters and hit the rewind button on them so that you can make another story there couldn't have been another a VK or another character in Oridon. It had to be her. It just seems so odd that they would rewind her for no apparent reason. She shouldn't be shocked that Ben is going to marry Mal because Ben's been with Mal, you know, this month. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it should not come as a surprise at all. I understand that that was her man and that was her throne and that was her crown. But she seemed to give up that notion and give up that animosity at the end of the first movie. So why are we rewinding her again? Right. Well, we did mention that when we talked about the first one is that she doesn't even care that she got her heart's not even broken. This was a showman. She cared yes. more about the status. She cared more about her arm candy. She cared more about the throne and becoming queen because two seconds later, she bounces back with Chad. So it was never about loving Ben, which, by the way, you want to talk about a regression. Here comes Chad, who owns the fact that he wants to be a lackey. Um, I mean, it would, it would render him useful in this universe. <laughs> if he, I mean, listen, at least he owned it. 
yeah, I want to break this down a little bit further because I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. Um, it sort of feels like they brought her back just for the sake of having a villain. I mean, I understand you're going to rule out anybody from the aisle because you're already running that storyline with Uma of why wasn't I chosen? And I don't want to admit that I actually do want to work with you for the greater good. Uma's going to go full Barbosa in this movie. We'll get to that. Um, I really think they just bought Audrey back for shock value because, she, like I said, she's not in the second one. So I think they were just trying to go with somebody that was unsuspecting. But when you think about where we left off with her, as you said, she's dancing and it doesn't seem like she's phased by all of this. When we bring her back, it sort of seems like it's coming from left field. I think that they could have done a little bit more development with pressure from her grandmother because anything bad that she did was because her grandmother keeps bringing up the past and see that's the thing where I actually do like Audrey as the villain because you are talking about descendants when it comes down to it in their final battle you are talking about two bloodlines from the same story Sleeping Beauty to see what happens all these years later so I like the conflict between her and Mal, but just as far as her character, this all does seem a little bit random. I see where she would be triggered by the engagement. And I do like that that's covered with that was supposed to be mine. But again, it's not about you stole my man. It's, it's about you stole my life. Um, and I feel like it would have been a lot more effective if we had seen Audrey really wreak havoc, not just by using Maleficent's staff, but taking all of those artifacts that we talk about, that we talked about last week. They're yeah. just sitting there in the museum, not doing anything. I would have loved to seen her unleash everything from that room. And that would have been a lot more fun. But what I do appreciate is that they raise the issue of you don't really know who to trust because good can come from evil or somebody perceived as evil and good people can do really bad things. Right. Which is sort of how they tie this entire movie up. I like her as a villain in spite of the fact that I don't like that they sharp paid her. I like her as a villain. I would have liked her more if her grandmother would have been pushing her buttons throughout the entire film or at least a little bit longer than she did because her grandmother kind of says, your mother controlled a prince in her sleep and walked away, and now here we are breaking into the museum because I'm going to take back what's mine. It just seems like she jumps at this conclusion. I understand it's a made-for-TV film, but it still has a running time of nearly two hours. You could have given a... You know what? I could have done... And, and I like the music. You could have done one less song and forced another scene in as opposed to doing another musical number where you have her grandmother really planting this idea in her head and her grandmother very much using her almost as a puppet, perhaps almost living vicariously through her. Now she's finally, this is how she enacts her revenge on Maleficent for not being able to raise her own daughter is now she goes after Maleficent's kid. There could have been something here 
Instead, we kind of just jump into her being the villain. And she does a fine enough job. She cheeses it up a little too much. I think the birthday party scene, she cheeses it way too much. But as it goes on, I buy her. But it just seems like they jumped into it and they could have let it breathe a little bit more. I agree. Yeah, Grandma as the puppet master would have been great, especially because as they're watching uh, Hades try and escape from the barrier on TV, they immediately jump to, well, Mal can't even protect Oridon. Her grandma is never going to be a fan no matter what. But it is such a quick turn in that moment because Mal is the, everybody's down and Mal is the only one taking a hit. So I think that was kind of an unfair statement. And that's where it would have breathed a little bit more because Audrey flips right away. I can see where she would just be trying to trash talk her and try and place doubt within everybody again that Mal's not the one that's fit for the job. And then, as you said, we could have expanded on that. And I will go against my own beliefs about thinking the engagement would have been better served at the end. It would have been so ironic if Ben didn't find it appropriate to invite his ex to the engagement party. Now, what happens when somebody gets left out of being invited to a party? But instead, she throws it out there during this birthday party scene of a party. I wasn't invited. Like, I can I can live with with a hat tip to really the entire reason why we're doing this in Maleficent. But it would have worked better, to your point, if she would have just been left out completely. And then it's like a victim of circumstance because Ben has upset her. But meanwhile, he thought he was sparing her feelings. Exactly. And Mal's because it's your ex. You don't really do that. But yes, that a birthday party I wasn't invited to, it should have landed so much harder. I appreciate the hat tip. But if we're going back to the roots of these characters, that should have packed a big punch. I want to talk for a second about the choice of VKs here, the ones that they're bringing over. Dizzy Tremaine we knew was coming, so we're going to set her aside. But I don't think that she should count. She was Evie's pick. If VK Day means that four could come over, it seemed like Dizzy was the exception. Because Evie asked that as a personal favor of Ben. Yeah. Um, And they had the whole dog and pony show at the end of the second movie where... Ben's men go with the scroll and they invite her, so they didn't need to do it a second time, but they did. But we've already discussed Dizzy last week. How do you feel about the Smee boys? I think this is one of those things that they did because they had a cool visual. I mean, I they kind of look like they're just cosplaying Smee. And I can live with that, Um I just wish that they would have done something other than eat a piece of cake and fall asleep. Yes. I thought when we're getting four new VKs that they are somehow going to play a role in this, especially once you get Harry Hook involved. Like, do the Smee kids work with Harry Hook somehow to help save Auradon? Like, it would have been a really interesting concept, and they kind of just... They just don't go anywhere. It's like, well, we need four... Make them twins and we're going to kill two birds with one stone. It's also really not fair that they lumped Dizzy in with the eating cake thing, especially when she had such a good relationship with Evie. I was expecting to watch that grow, especially because you know that Mal is lying to her best friend. I feel like Dizzy would have become her confidant 
and Evie would have taken comfort in the relationship with Dizzy because she didn't have Mal to rely on anymore. And we get none of that. Yeah. How do you feel about Celia Facilier, played by Jada Marie? Uh, at first glance in the uh, icon on Disney Plus, yeah. I thought it was the Mad Hatter's daughter. I didn't realize it was Dr. Facilier's until they actually announced who was going. Um, I think I think the character's great. I think she's a lot of fun. I think it's an interesting choice, though, that all four of them, though, are younger kids this time around. Yeah, they're all about... They range between what I would say is like 9 and 12. I would say Celia is the oldest. Um, I think that was a smart choice because you did need to give them a reason to be able to get to Hades. And she does cover it up that, you know, because her dad's crooked. So he's just teaching her what he knows. You know, Celia ran Hades' errands. So she has access to, to Hades. You needed somebody to have it. Otherwise, it falls apart more than it already does. Yeah, and I like Jada Marie in the role. I liked the choice of villain kids here. Um, I wish we would have seen more with the Smees, as I said before, but I like her. I like how she plays the character. I like that she gives that added depth to it, that she's not just there because, that she's there to get Mal to Hades and that she is the one that is taken by Audrey at the end. I really liked it. I love I love that they had Facilier in there. I thought yes. he was spectacular. Um yeah, it, it worked. I you know, at at the expense of repeating myself at nauseum, I just wish they would have done more. Dizzy's a great character. We talked about it last week. We love her. She sleeps the entire movie. I just wish they would have incorporated these VKs more. And that I thought personally was a was a swing and a miss. I also wish we would have seen more VKs who did not get picked. Again, show the criteria for what is making you pick another four, but also you would feel the weight so much more later on when you're seeing who's getting cut off when Mal wants to close the barrier. Speaking of when the barrier is shutting the first time, and Hades tries to break through. Cheyenne Jackson plays Hades. How did you feel about him portraying such an iconic villain that I actually, I think I've gone on record as saying that is completely underappreciated, by the way. I love him. I mean, I'm a fan from American Horror Story. The only time I ever considered anyone else for the role was during the duet and I was like "Ooh, I would have loved to see what Adam Lambert did with this but only just because I think Adam Lambert is brilliant that's not to take away from anything that he did I, I think Cheyenne Jackson was incredible I thought I loved his look I yes. loved this like rock and roll look that he had to him with the leather jacket I love the set of his lair when you see him, when Celia brings him down and you're waiting for the dogs to come and you see that it's just a record because at the end of the day, he is kind of just, he's a scam artist, right? And that's kind of just how he is. And he's a quick talker. It's how he was in the original film in Hercules. I love that they carried it over him. It was like, or carried it over here. It was just like such a Hades thing to do. But I really like this set. And 
a lot of the strength in this series has been the sets. So when you see things like horrific CGI backgrounds, we talked about it in the pirate ship scene in the last film. They rely on it so much more in this movie. And for, for a franchise that has developed such a great little universe, when they rely on this bad CGI, it just is so frustrating, especially when you look at how great his set is. I wish they would have just done more with this throughout the entire film. Right, especially because they have that cool tandem bike that they have to ride through the caves to get yes. down there. That I love the whole scene, like you said, with the dogs. Um, I expected that because it would be such a, a gag for Hades to pull off, but it still delivers. It's still brilliant. And I love what it does for Celia because she's fearless going in there. Yeah. Uh, and but she doesn't reveal to Mal what's really going on. Uh, I agree with you. I love the set. Um, although it's not in the scene, we do see it when he breaches the barrier. I love the fire. They finally got some CGI right with his <laughs> they hair. They did a hundred percent to a point where, and because we know Disney is going to eventually remake everything. I hope that's how they go when they do the live action remake of Hercules, that they don't try to do an entire CGI being. So that said, love the actor, love what they did for the character, love the set. Oh. Don't love what this did for story, because to me, this raises far too many questions when we are in the third film, we should be getting more answers. I feel like it's a little bit too late in the game to be giving Mal daddy issues. And what really bothers me is that this means that Mal is a demigod. Shouldn't her powers be exponential? Instead, she's got to say a little rhyme to make something happen. Like, no, you're the daughter of Hades. Aside from the fact that that should have been revealed a long time ago. That was a big swing and a miss for me. I am actually going to disagree. Wow. Okay. I like him as the father. Because we have said, you know, who's getting with Drizella over on the aisle you kind of wonder, like, who's getting with Maleficent where Mal is a character in this movie. I like the fact that it's him. Mostly just, I mean, I just love the character Hades. But to your point, he is a demigod. She is only half demigod. As a child, as a 16-year-old, for all intents and purposes, other than the size of the love in her heart, she should not have been able to defeat Maleficent in the first movie. There's got to be something else to her. There's got to be something else that gives her a push, that gives her an advantage. How else are you going to have an advantage over Maleficent if not being part demigod? So I think it kind of makes sense that they did this, and it answers the question, you know, obviously... If you're on the aisle, you're a villain. And if you're having kids on the aisle, you're having kids with another villain. So who's the other villain? And I, I just really like that it's Hades. Well, I will say this. I'm proud of my little cougar K-Chen there because <laughs> clearly Hades is younger than she is. But again, to me, that opens up an entire door of questions. 
this could have been what the villains were plotting the entire time is that they're repopulating this island with their kids and trying to force their beliefs on them. So now, how many years have passed since they've been banished? They have kids who are high school age that are grown that they can really, like, weaponize. And now that Ben has opened the door and bridged the gap, now you can actually start putting this into fruition. And that's my bigger issue, is that the last we saw Maleficent, she's a gecko. I don't believe that she went back to the island in the second one and nobody helped her, especially because we saw it with Mal. What happened when she went back to the island? The magic disappeared and she was no longer an old hag from when uh, Audrey transformed her. Right. So by that logic, Maleficent should be back in human form now. And wouldn't you think that she'd be plotting her revenge because now not only did Oridon steal her daughter away, it completely changed her daughter. Good call. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Aside from the fact that I hate that we lost the original core four villains from the first one and we never see what happens to our original core four VK's parents and their storylines just fall by the wayside. That's where I feel this is too big of an introduction now when all of that is just floating in the abyss somewhere. And I wouldn't even mind if we didn't see them if, I almost said Hercules, if Hades would have addressed it, if Hades would have said something to cover up the fact that they're no longer there, or even if he did something. But... And forgive me, I may not be up on my Hercules enough. I thought Hades was a god, which would make Mal a demigod. You said she's part demigod. Well, because she's half Hades, half Maleficent. Right, but that makes her a demigod. Half a demigod. She's a part demigod. Because she's got mortal. You know what I'm saying? She's Because Maleficent, I mean, Maleficent is a, is a human. She's just, oh wait, no, she's a fairy. So that's it. She's not a god. She's a fairy. Oh. With that said, she is part of a part of a part. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, I think because Maleficent in the animated version is described really as being a human that just has magical powers. In her live action movie, we find out she's a fairy. So, like, she's a part of of a god. I maybe I don't even know I don't think you can even consider her half god because she's got part god, part human and part fairy. I mean, maybe I'm looking into too many multiverses here, <laughs> but this is the trap that Disney set for themselves if they're trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. Well, I wouldn't even consider her human though, but I think that's it is that this and it, it should, I wish it's something that they had clarified more. We have to forget the canon to fully appreciate this because this is what I'm saying. It's too many questions, not enough answers. But forgetting all of that, forgetting Hades is a god, forgetting Mal's lineage, for, forgetting what that makes Mal, all of it aside you lost four big characters from the first one that never carried over. And it was fine if we would have left it at one film, beginning, middle, end, you tie it up in a bow. But because they never picked anything back up and we see Mal 
take the gecko back over the bridge. We know she's on the island somewhere. I don't know. Maybe maybe that she left her in the box too long. I know she punched the holes, but maybe her maybe she killed her mother and she's dead in a box. <laughs> but I don't put it past the evil queen Cruella and Jafar to not find her and and make this right again, especially when she was like the leader of that group. Yeah, the problem is you can live without seeing them again if they don't bring the barrier down completely. Yes. If the other villains, whether they be a parent or a grandparent, if they don't walk over at the end of this film, if the four characters themselves don't point out the fact that they haven't seen their parents since the first movie, this would not be such a problem. But because they bring everybody over and they themselves call it out, it's sort of like you're unnecessarily calling attention to the fact that you have a major plot hole. And I think that is a big, big miss in this movie. Right. And it would have been such an interesting subplot for Evie, Carlos, and Jay, who now that I'm thinking about it, it really hardly feels like they're in this film. Other than being lied to by Mal, it would have given them a more dynamic story in this one wrestling with, okay, clearly my parents have seen I have a street named after me. They're going to be asking some questions. They're going to be fighting to come over too. It, it just would have been interesting to see that play out a little bit more. And to your point before you had mentioned, what if the new set of VKs were being fed by some of the villains? This is where you could have done it. You could have shown all right, Maleficent, whether she's there or not. But at the very least, the evil queen Jafar and Cruella working with Dr. Facilier to channel whatever their evil plan is through him to Celia, especially because Celia is sort of set up as a conflicted character because she's running errands for Hades, but she was selected to go. And they do kind of write that off as she needed a little extra dose of good. But... And this is where I wish they just would have covered it is that they get to go to Oridon because there really is good inside of them. To yeah, me, yeah. that would make so much more sense for them to be chosen. Yeah, it's just, Celia's stone cold, though. Yeah, she is. When she just takes that ember and throws it in that birdbath, knowing what it means, she, she doesn't care. So that's part of that. You can take you can take the VK off the aisle, but you can't take the aisle out of the VK, which they mention a couple of times in this movie. Um in that case, it works. So, yeah, it's she's sort of an interesting case because she writes this letter to go because she wants to be chosen to go to Oridon because she wants to prove that she's good, but she's also still bad at the same time. But I kind of like that with her because I feel like she very much is pulling from her father. Like, this is my scam. This is my scheme. This is how I'm going to get from point A to point B and accomplish my ultimate goal. It's a very facilitate thing to do. I think the same can be said, though, for almost every VK in this film. And I think that's one of the things I do like so much about these characters is they do have that Jack Sparrow quality of I'm not good, I'm not bad, but I'm always going to be on the side of right. And sometimes you have to do the wrong thing to make it right. Um, that goes, it, it deviates a little bit from what, the first descendants tried to prove because they choose they chose good right 
clearly, you know, they, they set it in stone, they made the pact, but because you're dealing with such flawed characters, that's what keeps this film so interesting. You brought up Jack Sparrow. I want to talk about the return of Uma Gill and Harry. Yes. I was happy to see them back. I was happy to see Gill and Harry specifically get put with Jay and Carlos. I thought that that was a really interesting thing to do, especially the bromance that starts between Gil and Jay, I think is really funny. Absolutely. How did you feel about the struggle with Uma and Mal, the power struggle? I, I, at first, I wasn't so sure. I, I liked it better upon the second viewing. But I think part of the reason why I liked it better upon the second viewing was because its predictability was confirmed for me after we watched it the first time. So I didn't have that like pit in my stomach of, oh, here comes the power struggle that's going to end in the final third. How did you feel about them kind of bickering and going back and forth? Um, I think the bickering was a little pedestrian, uh, especially because this film does such a good job of breaking out of those high school tropes that we were very critical of in the first and second. Um, I like that there is a villain and an antagonist. That way things are really not that easy for Mel. And as I said, that is her big conflict, not I broke up with Ben. So I definitely think it keeps the story more interesting. Um, what I sort of wish that they would have done um because Uma just keeps writing her off as living the life and she makes it seem like Mal doesn't care when she cares very much. I wish that Mal would have showed her hand uh, and exposed that Ben is her fiance when they're trying to get him back. And that would have softened Uma a little bit, especially because, you know, obviously she put the spell on Ben, but... I felt like Uma always had a good understanding of their relationship because she did get that one-on-one -on -one time with Ben where he tried to level with her. And I think that she acknowledges what a good person he is and that should have been enough for her to want to help Mal. Um, otherwise, I think it plays out fine. The only thing that I really don't like is when Evie calls out how much better they are when they work together. I know that's been her thing the entire time, but I feel like you made her very ditzy and you dumbed down the character in this movie. You never address this starter castle, quote unquote, that she's living in and how she did that. I mean, I guess we can assume because she made all the dresses for the cotillion, she's got money, whatever. Uh, but it totally ruins the moment when she was like, see what happened. It's like, yes, we do. As the audience, we totally saw it and we didn't need you to reconfirm. Thank you, Evie. It's, it's heavy handed. Yes. That is, it's poor screenwriting because Evie has become, other than Harry Hook, probably my favorite character in this franchise. I think that she's endearing. I think she's fun. I think she's complex. To your point, I don't want to say they dumb her down, but they give her this very bizarre kumbaya attitude. Like, like she, 
she almost seems like a trope of like a camp counselor. You know what I'm saying? From like one oh, of these camp my God, movies, yes. right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like that's kind of how they like present her towards the end. And she's better than that. She's better than that the whole time. Yeah. If there is a weak point, like a blatant weak point to the screenwriting, other than Bibbidi Bobbidi getting really played out. Oh my God. Really bad. Um, I would agree with you. It's that scene. I think if they had exposed Mal's lie earlier, it would have been a lot more interesting if Evie started gravitating towards Uma a little bit because she was angry with Mal. I would have liked to see what that relationship developed into. Can we talk about when Mal exposes the lie? Yes. It happens. Of course, it's going to happen in the final third of the movie. But it happens, like, late into the final third of the movie. Yes. Like... The one one thing, I'm not going to say the one thing, but I'm going to say one thing that I had issue with over and over and over again. In all of these scenes, they are so quick to jump in and out of ideas. They don't breathe. Nothing breathes. It's not that the pacing is bad because the movie never gets boring, but there's no breathing room at all. No, and it's so funny because we've done this now for three films we talk about everything that they could have done and everything that they left out, and yet you're jamming so much into scenes, they don't breathe. Mal, in like the last, I don't know, seven minutes of the movie, exposes the lie. Everybody says we're turning our back on you. For whatever reason, Jay, Carlos, Evie, Ben, and Dude get turned to stone, but Celia doesn't, and Uma doesn't, and Harry doesn't. I don't think Gil does either. Why they all didn't get turned to stone, and why Mal didn't just fight Audrey on her own, because Uma does help her, but, you know, we're all going to help together, and we're all going to work together. It's just odd that only some of them get turned to stone, the other ones don't, but this whole thing is kind of like, I'm going to expose that I lied to all of you. You're going to turn us to stone. I'm going to sing a three minute song. <laughs> you will forgive me happily ever after. Yeah. It's kind of like they crash landing the <laughs> yeah. end because so much happens. A uh, lot to unpack there. First of all, starting with where the heck Gil is. He's off with Jane and Doug, who get totally dismissed to oh, go yeah. find Fairy Godmother. And they're literally sitting on the steps, staring at her statue. And they do nothing. That's right. That's where he for is. For the end of this movie. So that was a huge miss. Um, as far as... It, it's also funny that you're making this into a randomly selected turn to stone. I had thought that this film totally takes on an Avengers quality as soon as they get to the woods and they're coming up on the cabin because you have all these brightly colored bodysuits going through the woods. And I was like, oh, where does this look familiar? And I was like, ah, uh, Age of Ultron. Audrey um, Thanos. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. It does kind of seem like the snapping and that some got turned and some didn't yeah um i think really what it is is the plot device for mal to have to like literally look her problems in the eye in the stone um but 
it's it's kind of a cop out, especially when you have three not main characters, but three important characters off doing nothing. It should be such an important scene. And there should be so much that happens after that where she has to regain their trust. But instead, I sing about it and all is forgiven and forgotten in literally three minutes and I win. To me, there's also another elephant in the room as far as the lies go. How do you wait to reveal that Hades is her father, and especially for Ben. Isn't that something that he should be pissed off about that he didn't know? And even Jay and Carlos, Evie was the only one that knew. They had every right to be pissed that they were left out of that. Yeah, they just, they rushed through so many things. They rushed through so many things um, to get to musical numbers. And we're, we're almost there. We're going to talk about the musical numbers in just a moment because we're going to we're going to determine whether it was worth rushing through these scenes to get to these musical numbers. She, this is Mal, very quickly, because nothing breathes, very quickly battles Audrey, very quickly defeats Audrey. Audrey is put to sleep. The only person that can wake her is Hades. I could sit here and ask why, but at the end of the day, it's sort of like, it's just a movie. I guess I can kind of live with it. Mm, I can't. Go for it. Hades steals souls, not gives them back. I love, though, how he does call out the double standard. When they call him in to help Audrey, and he goes, so let me understand something. A good person turns bad. Oops, they made a mistake. Yes. Yeah, yeah, a bad, yeah. but I do something bad, and you banish me to an island. And all of us, none of us get a second chance. Don't give us the benefit of the doubt, and then you turn to me for help. I thought it was a really interesting commentary, and I like that he does it. I like that he calls it to attention. I do, too. I think that that was such a smart choice. For as bad as the bippity-boppity gets played out, this is great writing here. Uh, You know, and especially because we've loved Ben and his idea this entire time. Yeah. It shows that this was a flawed plan, too. The only thing that I think they could have punched up a little bit more was him trying to redeem himself as a father. And this is where it's so wasted that you don't get Maleficent back because again, you introduce this character late to the party and like we're being asked as the audience to care, to care that you're repairing your relationship with your daughter, to care that you did do the right thing and overlook the fact that the villains have been slighted and you're giving Audrey the same chance that they deserve when what she did was worse than what some of the other villains have done. But yeah, that commentary on you'll do it because she's one of your own was so brilliant. The problem is that in the first movie, the the four VKs go with the intention of following through with Maleficent's plan and they slowly figure out that they don't have to do that because it's not what they want to actually do. They just lie to everybody, but cooler heads prevail. In this case, you actually did have somebody go in, steal the scepter, because they were determined. See, the thing is, Audrey did what they couldn't do, what they didn't want to do. Um, And the, the thing is, like, 
you just needed I feel like you needed more Hades. Like the problem is that he's in what? Three scenes? Maybe four? And most of them are just very quick. And he, one of them's a song. I I really wish they would have played with this idea more and that he would have had a bigger role in the movie. Right, because wouldn't Audrey's first plan of attack be to open the barrier herself? So you could have gotten Hades in and and had him start to repair the relationship with Mal, even though he's wreaking havoc in Oridon. And again, you could have bought back the rest of the parents. Like, that should have been her first order of business, was to to get Maleficent over to the other side and give her her scepter back. Correct. And it would have been such an interesting conflict for Mal, too, because now she really has to face her mother and draw the line in the sand of, no, I'm with them now. And again, she does have a throwaway line of, I don't hate my mother, but she never abandoned me. Right. So they never really even, I mean, I guess that is your whole springboard for Hades to want to do one thing right by her. But again, the ending is just so rushed. There should have been more of a, there should have been more having to coax him yes. to do it. And we don't even see him come back from the aisle. The next thing we know, the guards have just brought him back. That's where it should have been this big moment for Mal to appeal to him to do the right thing. Not just to voice all of it and say, well, he'll do it for me because he's my father. I think they tried to basically do that exact thing when he hands her the ember. Kind of like, I don't need it anymore. You need it more than me. Like, it was supposed to be symbolic, but the problem is, because nothing breathes and they rush in and out of things, mm-hmm. it totally is glossed over. It doesn't carry the weight that it should. Right, and it could have been such a more interesting scene, too, because Mal's whole thing is, we can't keep going in and out, and that's why she decides to close the barrier for good. Now she's got to go to the barrier. She has to open it up once again. The last time you did that... Gil and Harry came through, and Uma came back, but you have to go in to get him. Yeah. It would have just been such a better conflict. Let's talk about the final scene of this movie. When Mal says, I cannot be the queen. And then she elaborates on it and says, I can't be the queen of just Auradon. You knew that they were going to bring down that barrier. But what I didn't see happening was her standing up in front of that entire kingdom and saying, I cannot be your queen. I wasn't expecting it either. And I actually really loved it. I think that that was the perfect punchline for her character. Because, I mean, for as much as we've picked apart these movies and picked on these movies... We have said Mal has had such a great character arc every single time. And what is impressive is that it's gotten stronger each time without being repetitive. For sure. For sure. Because there's always been something different motivating her. Um, And it pushes her to make more adult decisions. Like, against better judgment, having to close the barrier because... She no longer cares about what's good for her friends. She cares about what's good for her kingdom. She's not even a queen yet. Um, and then, you know, she has that that moment of maturity and says, you know, we're, we're going to be inclusive, not exclusive, right? So, yeah, she for sure has just brilliant character arcs in each film. Um, with that said, is she my favorite character 
over the course of three movies. She's not. But it's not it's not because Dove Cameron doesn't do a good job with her. It's just that there's so much depth at times to so many other characters, like an Evie or a Harry Hook, that I find them to be just slightly more interesting. I guess just some of what they do with her, her, her character arcs are good. They just, because they rush through certain things and because they don't let things breathe, the whole series is sort of, they, the, every film falls victim to it. It's the worst in this, of all the three of them, it's the worst in this than it is in the others. Everything that she does, in spite of the fact that arcs are good, they just all are so predictable. This was the one real big twist that I thought, wow, like they actually did something unique and did something different and it took me by surprise. I agree. And I'm really glad that they went for it. But at the same time, you did sacrifice something to give her such a strong arc in that you lost Evie's, Jay's, and Carlos's. And we are going to talk about as far as how their arcs go in the trilogy in a moment, but for this movie, they all should have gotten a stronger ending. They tried to do it with Evie and the true love's kiss thing, which we're going to talk about when we get to her song, but okay. So you have Jay broing out with Gil and Harry more so Gil. Um, okay. It's nice, but it's not as, as strong as when they're, uh, when Jay and Carlos are bonding with Ben. Yes. And you totally lost that relationship, which has been growing over two films in this one. All right. So granted, Ben is running around as a beast, but the three of them were very solid. And I feel like that totally got lost here. And then Carlos, he has Jane. There's the awkward moment where he, not awkward in that it plays bad, but it's just like so fitting of their relationship where he gives her the Jarlos necklace. Yeah. I actually really love that moment. Yeah, it was very funny. Because, you know, we're so used to seeing these perfect Disney relationships and really until Princess Anna, you didn't get that blundering, I don't know how to handle myself in this situation. And now we see it here. So I really do love that moment. But... I feel like over these three films, we have fallen in love with these characters and EVJ and Carlos deserved more than that. Yeah, we're going to talk about their character arcs in totality when we wrap up this franchise, you know, in its totality. So I want to put a pin in, pin in that for just a second because I do want to talk about the music. Yes, we have been talking about this for two films now and I feel like for as much as we've been ripping on these movies the one thing that has been pretty consistent is how much we like the music mm-hmm. aside from you didn't like that one EDM one and the auto tune the yeah. yeah the auto tune has been slightly unforgivable uh, but we have not mentioned the composer David Lawrence yet and it is no wonder we like the music so much because he did do High School Musical okay that's a given I think you're working with Kenny Ortega, that's like a Tim Burton and Danny Elfman combination now at this point. Yeah. But he also did Teen Beach. And I went, ah, of course we love this music. Yeah. Noticeably less auto-tune in this movie, may I say. Yes. Uh, Okay. Well, that would explain why the music, for the most part, has been very, very solid. He also did American Pie, too. Just throwing that out there. So he's a very diverse composer. I just... 
when I hear American Pie 2, I kind of just think like some 41. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> it's still scored, though. Good to be bad is the first song in the movie. It is so, so early 90s. For that much, I love it. I do, too. I love all of the graffiti all over the walls. I love the hip-hop breakdown. That's the thing. Carlos and Jay's best moment in this film should not be them busting a move. Although, I will say this, is that Boo Boo Stewart and Cameron Boyce, they were always great dancers, but they matured so much, and they just beasted out this number. The choreography, I will say this now, is noticeably better in... Not that it wasn't good in the first two movies. It's noticeably better in this movie. It blows away the choreography of the first three. Yeah, it like it just keeps... Well, I wouldn't say that, though, because uh, What's My Name? That whole number was incredible, and the choreography was great. Um, But yeah, it's just something that they've built on in every single one. The only thing I have a problem with is it's good to be bad, but you're not bad. You're good. I understand the idea is it's good to be bad because now you can come to Oradon, but it's not good to be bad. If it were good to be bad, you'd still be bad. Right. The whole thing is you're good now and you're trying to convince everybody to be good. But if it's good to be bad, then why do you want to be good? Because it's good to be bad. I could do this circle all day <laughs> long. And Sophia Carson, in this song in particular, I don't know about you, I think she sounds like Gwen Stefani. But like, no doubt Gwen Stefani. And I love Gwen Stefani, and I love how that's working for her, but her voice is so much better than this. This is what I'm talking about. I feel like they dumbed down her character so much. When you hold it up against a song like... um not meet me in the middle the yeah i know (laughs) between us or whatever it was from the second movie i know what you're talking about this was only last week how have i forgotten the name yeah that one you know what i'm talking about go back and listen to last week's episode we've moved on these two women are belting out this song and it's beautiful and you're not showcasing her range here no if there's anybody whose range is not showcased properly at all for this entire movie... The space between. Sorry. <laughs> you got it. Uh, it's Sophia Carson. Queen of Mean. This is Audrey's song. I have to be honest with you. By the end, it's fine. In the beginning, though, when she starts in doing the rap and she sounds like this... I immediately think of, from the moment I heard Frau say I had a clone. I, I <laughs> She sounds like Dr. Evil. Like, I go straight, I go straight to Austin Powers. Like the talk rappy, it's Dr. Evil. I need Hades because I am deceased. I, <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> oh, forgive me, listeners, as I try and find my footing again here. Um, I agree with you. <laughs> no, it. I, that's the other thing. I would very loosely call it rap. It is like a sing-talky... It's like when Kanye <laughs> tries to sing. Oh, boy. Um... <laughs> 
we are not going to make a lot of friends on this episode. No. Um, here's the thing. I like it more as a moment than I do as a song. Agreed. Uh, because I love the wardrobe change. I love the hair change. I like those big notes at the end. But to me, they should have lost the rap, quote unquote, because what have we always said about our Disney villains that we love? They have these theatrical numbers, especially your Disney Renaissance film. If they Mm -hmm. had given her like a big flashy song, it would have been so much better. But I think the reason that they held back on her is probably because of Once Upon a Time. You're not going to have Audrey outshine Mal. You just can't. For sure. Do what you got to do. This is the song between Hades and Mal. This might be the best song in 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 all three of these movies. I would pu- I'll put it in the top 3 because I think there's one that's better and it's also in this movie. I absolutely love this. I love the lyrics. I love the duet. I love the back and forth. I love the double meaning. I love the talent, like everything about this. This is like, this to me is the earworm of the movie. I love this number. I don't want to love it as much as I do, but God, I love it so much. Because this goes back to what you said before, is that... In this film in particular, they start pumping so much story into the music, which they didn't do enough of in the first two. In the second one, they started getting it. But this is sort of what I realized about the trilogy as a whole. I've been very critical about you are sacrificing story to get to the musical numbers, to get to the visuals. And here is when they finally figured out how to give you both because as many questions as Hades raises if you're looking at the big picture and the canon and all of the films as far as just introducing him for this film it does work because it's giving you a little bit of the backstory and it's giving you a lot of their relationship Night Falls I like this song I love the spell and I love the choreography when they're fighting these knights in shining armor. That to me, the visual is better than the actual song, but that's not to say that the song is bad. Yeah, I like the play on words more than I like the actual song, but the number overall makes up for it. And you can tell the fight choreography certainly picked up from the second one because we were very critical of the sword fight being a little bit slow. Um, Yeah, I think this was clever, and I love how it became a dance battle, which wasn't actually far-fetched. I think they made it all work. Yeah, and it was just another reason for Aubrey to go, ugh, as she looked into the scepter, which kind of just seemed like if she wasn't yelling at Chad or laughing, she was just looking at the scepter going, ugh. (laughs) I actually like how it kept cutting back to her. I like that fisheye lens effect that they did. It was all right. The visual was okay. It's just again, like you've got this, you've got this this villain, and I know she's in over her head, and she doesn't necessarily know what she's doing. But you have to do more than just make her pouty, right? Well, I guess 
here's what I do appreciate. I like that she had a way of looking in because nothing took me out of this film more than when Jane comes up for air and she calls Ben on her cell phone. They have not used phones this entire time. The only thing they did was the Skype call to the parents. I thought that that was such a cop out. So I'm glad that they didn't have any like tech thing or security cameras that Audrey was going off of. Mm -hmm. One kiss. This is Sophia Carson's solo. We're going to start a new segment on monoreal radio called scenes and descendants that are unnecessarily sexy. This should be fun, but it's not mostly because it's just repetitive it's repetitiveness here i come here i come here i come (laughs) i can't tell you any lyric other than here i come here's what i do like is that this entire time doug has been doting on her because let's be honest she's out of his league i'm sorry doug but she is she's gorgeous And she's got a lot going for her. She's incredibly talented. She's a great designer. She's a kind person. Evie's the total package. And for that much, I'm sitting here going, yeah, girl, get it. When, you know, she's like crawling around on the floor and she is getting very sexy. It's great for a music video. It's a little too much, I think, for a Disney movie, even though we are growing with the audience. We think, are they kids to be 16? We don't know. It was just a little bit awkward and uncomfortable when she was like crawling on the floor. But I do like the conflict they gave as far as their relationship. And for as much as they have been on the same page from the jump, they haven't been able to say the L word. And for as much as Evie loves the VKs and she loves what she can do for them. She's just a very loving character. She struggles with it as well. She should, because she never had that love from her parents. We should have seen that type of a conflict play out a little bit more is what happens when these kids start to fall in love who have never experienced love. We saw it with Mal in the first one, but now they're all sort of experiencing it. Um, But anyway, I think it got a little bit too mature and it does pick itself up, though, when she sort of kicks Doug's lifeless body into a standing position. That was actually cool. Once she gets him up on the table, it's all good. But otherwise, it was just weird. And then she asks for a moment alone, but Mal and Uma are like doing the doo-wop from the doorway. It. The whole thing was very clunky. They're shooping from the doorway. <laughs> Not as bad as Ben going swimming on the first date, but... Oh, that was the this worst. Is very close. My once upon a time. My one critique is not of the song. It's basically that you don't need a flashback of what we just literally saw. You want to do flashbacks from the first two movies. It's not necessary because we've seen them. We get it. But you're flashing back things that we saw five minutes ago. They did that in the first one, too, though, when she sings her solo, which should have been a duet with Ben. But with that being said, not only is this Dove Cameron's best song in the franchise, this is the best song in three movies. Period. Hands down. And I would even go so far as to say, I get it now. This song made a believer out of me. This song 
completely flipped me. This song made me fall in love with this franchise, especially what it does for her character. Because when you think about that awful solo that should have been a duet when she sings in the middle of her date with Ben when he should be drowning in two feet of water because she leaves him there, mm-hmm. uh, it shows maturity for both the character, for both and her range as far as the actress goes, really belting out these notes. But man, I was watching this and I was sort of like, Alan Menken, eat your heart out. It's really good. I I mean, this is catnip for me, admittedly. This is like Elsa letting it go when she takes off that cape. It's like show yourself when she's embracing the past. Like there is nothing I love more, especially when it's a female character, really deciding who she wants to be and totally embracing it. And that's what this number did. And they package it all in a catchy song with, with a great setting. And I just loved it. I am totally converted now. It, it, I don't say this often, but this actually forgave everything else that I have issues with with these films. Break this down. I think of all of the finales that we have, we have three of them at least so far. I think this is the best finale song. I think the choreography is better than the song itself, but that's not to say that it's not a good song. It's fun. I can understand why tweens love it. To me, it's probably the one to it's the third best song of the movie. Um, but it's fun. You know, it's 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 a good finale. If if this is how you were ending the franchise for a big ensemble dance number where we're going to have our all in this together moment, I can I can get down with this. I couldn't disagree more. And you just said it yourself. This is the culmination of three movies. It shouldn't be, eh, it's good, eh, it's fun, I can get down with it. It should be, wow, this blew my freaking mind. To me, I kind of feel like the end of the second one was a lot stronger. And I mean, granted, okay, it's almost not fair to compare the two because you've got the water spraying up everywhere and the choreography is so cool. But even if you take that away, it was still a better song and the dance numbers were better and the character interactions were so much better. You had all the couples dancing, but then you had them sort of going off with different characters that they've bonded with. Speaking of characters that they've bonded with who completely disappear, what happened to Lonnie, who had such a great character arc? Yeah, she's totally gone. Totally gone. You never see her again. They could have done so much more with that, especially with the night battle, too. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about character arcs, and let's talk about the conclusion of this franchise. You kind of mentioned it before with Jay and Carlos specifically. Of the two of them, really of the four of them, the person that has the least of a character arc is Jay. And I hate to say that because I really like Jay as a character. Mm -hmm. Nothing against Boo Boo Stewart. The character is awesome. But he peaks at the end of the first movie. Otherwise, I kind of get the feeling that he's just along for the ride. Carlos, he's with Jane. They planted it at the end of the second movie... It carries over here, and he has the line of, I'm going to be a vet. Is that an arc? 
I think it's a change. I don't know that I'd say it's necessarily a strong arc. But, I mean, look, by far, it's Evie and Mal who have the two best arcs of the four original VKs. The kumbayaness of Evie aside, I love what she stands for. What I love about her is her consistency Mm -hmm. because she's the one, the minute they get into the dorms in the first movie, she's like, oh my God, look at this. And Mal goes, I know it's horrible, right? And she's like, "Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's close the blinds. From the minute she gets there, she's smitten with the idea of being there. And they kind of take that theory and they expand on it. I love that she's consistent Mal obviously has a lot of growing up to do and they keep throwing adversity at her and they keep forcing maturity on her. She answers the call every time. Those two have proper character arcs, but they leave something to be desired with Jay and Carlos. Uh, I would agree, except for what you said about Jay peaking at the end of the first one. I think he comes even farther in the second one because of what he does for Lonnie. True. And makes her the captain on a technicality in the rule book and that he's willing to break the rules for her. Uh, But what I really don't like that you lost about Jay is this big brother quality that he has with Mal, especially now that she's engaged. I think he should have been like ribbon Ben about it, Uh, you know, because you do have that camaraderie and you know the cast got along so well and it bleeds through into the film so beautifully, especially like when they keep demanding speeches and she's like, okay, peasants, go away, whatever. Yeah. Like, I love the friendship between the four of them, but you do lose that family quality because they're all off in different places. But especially, I think you feel it the most with Jay because he was that big brother to her. Um, With Carlos... um. I don't think that it's necessarily a bad arc because, you know, he was the techie geek, not geek, maybe that's not fair, but he was the brains to Jay's brawn. So I like that he's sort of coming into his own and he's got a girlfriend now. But I feel like as far as, again, the core four, he didn't have nearly enough screen time with them. And and you didn't do a lot with dude this time around either. And the real shame of it is that he passed right after this film. So it's like, you really wish he would have gone out on much more of a high note. Um, with Evie, um, I definitely agree. She's been consistent and I love when she really sticks it to Mal about the lying. And she's like, you lied to Jay and you lied to Carlos and you lied to me. And the delivery just cuts so deep. Um, But she has a really full arc, even though they did dumb her down. Uh, You know, just thinking about coming into this as Mal's sidekick, she really does come into her own. And I love how she's the one who's really, for as much as Mal is doing, Evie's really the one that's fighting for the VKs more than anyone else. For sure. Uh, And for Mal, I just love her. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say she's my favorite because I love all of the core four. Um, But I think she's an incredibly strong heroine. I love that she is still a conflicted character, but she always does choose the good and do the right thing. And 
even though she stumbles along the way, you know, Evie says it, she always comes through. Yeah. Um, okay, I think final thoughts. I'll go first. Well, are we doing final thoughts of this film? Or I kind of feel like it, it sort of plays hand in uh, hand with the trilogy. To, to me, it plays one into the other. I'll go first. I think this movie gets better on multiple viewings for sure. Um, I think I think they told a complete story in this film and in the franchise. I think it was a fitting end. I, I think while predictable, still it's fitting and it works. I agree with what we talked about earlier that we are really missing something, not having those four original villain parents come back. But is Descendants worth the hype? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, Is it my favorite DCOM? No. Teen Beach, to me, the first Teen Beach movie is better than all three of these. But... Whereas I had Teen Beach 1, High School Musical 2, you know, in our early rankings of DCOMs. Uh, to clarify, High School Musical as a trilogy was second behind Teen Beach, not the film High School Musical 2. Correct. Th- this, I think, is all around, I think it's a better trilogy than High School Musical. I think it's a better franchise than High School Musical. Um, I just think that the first movie's sort of ho-hum. It's it's not it, it's interesting that they get so much better as they go on. Um usually you get something like a high school musical where the first movie's pretty good, the second movie was horrible, and then the third was okay. But anything put against the second movie is of course going to be very good. Um and then Teen Beach, the first one is just so it's so good. It's the to me Based on what we've seen, and we've seen a lot of the big ones, I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Teen Beach is the best decom of all time. Right now, at least, that's where I rank it. The second one is so far at the bottom of my list, it's not even funny. Um, But this is, this kind of like holds its place. Like, the first one's not great, though it's not bad. I guess of a franchise, it's the most consistent. I think it's kind of interesting that they the fourth movie is like this animated short. I, I don't know why they did that when they have announced that they're doing two more movies. Um, but I, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what happens with them. But as a fr- yeah, I like it. I like Descendants. I, I'd say it's worth the hype. I, I It doesn't exceed my expectations, but I'd say it's worth the hype. Had you asked me after the first one, I did not think it was worth the hype, but as a trilogy, it redeemed itself, which I almost hate to say because a film should stand on its own. So you shouldn't have needed two more to appreciate the first one. But with all that being said, the more we dove into this universe, the more and more I liked about it and the more I was able to focus on what is in front of us instead of what we are missing. For as much as I have sat here over the past three weeks and pitched a million ideas of how this could have gone or what I would have liked to see, that's not my main focus when watching these films anymore. Uh, And it's not going to be when I watch them again because I certainly will. Yeah. Not often is this going to be my first choice. No, but I might 
make it part of the Halloween rotation. Uh, some films more than others. Um, what really converted me, aside from my Once Upon a Time, uh, is that I stopped getting so hung up on the idea of these films are sacrificing story to get to musical numbers and they're sort of sitting back on their laurels as far as a cool aesthetic goes and not giving us plot, which I think is still true of the first one, but where they improve it and where my mind is sort of changed is that it's not necessarily that they're sacrificing story for music. It's that these are character driven films and that doesn't read in the first one but because they've matured because they've given multiple character arcs because they've grown with the audience that is what changed my mind and that's where these films are successful and what I hope to see because I don't know that I want to watch the royal wedding but what I'm really hoping for in these next couple of films is that they do the chime jump and that they are more geared towards adults. Because what I was thinking after the first one was, gee, I wish they hadn't gotten stuck in the high school trope trap that they've set for themselves. Right. If they had done it as the kids, but if they were all like young adults, college age, really wrestling with coming into their own and having to shake off any preconceived notions that the parents, the parents' reputations have put on them. So... That was sort of my mentality just in the very beginning stages of all this. And I thought it would have been much more interesting had it been another time, another place, and they were a little bit older. But for what it is and for what they turned it into, uh, I definitely had a lot more fun with it coming out on the other side of the three films. I just wish in this film in particular, you could have eliminated two of these songs, freed up six minutes of screen time so that you didn't have to necessarily rush through certain things and you could have played some things out a little bit more. What are the songs that you would lose? Queen of Mean and One Kiss. You could do without both of those songs. You don't have to do without True Love's Kiss Waking Doug. It didn't need a song. I definitely agree on on One Kiss. Um, I don't think you needed Audrey to have a song about becoming mean and being the queen of mean. Her stealing that scepter and that crown. It could have happened without a song. In if this. you could have eliminated six minutes and slid back Mal having to admit her lie and spend six minutes, six additional minutes, trying to make amends with everybody instead of it just snapping into place because she sang her once upon a time. Would you have done it? Would it have made the movie better? Yes, but I'm thinking story-wise you probably could have eliminated before Nightfalls uh, because Uma and Mal would have had to figure out how to work together regardless. They yeah. would have eventually got there, so story-wise I think you could have lost that one but for me it's all about my once upon a time I don't think you understand how much I really do like this song like Sean went to get a tattoo today and in the three hours that he was gone this song was blasting through the house I had a moment where I didn't need to be doing any audio work and 
it was just on repeat on Spotify. I really do love that song. Meanwhile, my tattoo artist and I watched Apocalypse Now. <laughs> mean, speaking of, uh, I have three tattoos. Leg tattoo. Let me just put this out there. It's so off topic. Leg tattoos, they hurt. You don't think they're going to hurt. They hurt really bad. I'm just saying, be prepared for that should you ever get a cat a tattoo on your calf. All right, but anyway, that's going to be it for Descendants 3, for Descendants as a franchise. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you have to say about the third movie and the franchise as a whole. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the Week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey, everyone, this is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney, and when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money, but she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks guys, talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So at the time of this recording, Genie Plus is launching tomorrow. However, my services will remain free. So you can get in touch with me at any of our social media outlets, at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Design. If you are looking for branding, print and graphic design, or media kits, you have to talk to Kelly because Disney content creators are her specialty, but she does so much more. If you have a wedding or an event coming up, save the dates, invites, thank you cards, table numbers. She takes care of all of that. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see all of her work at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. There is is some MCU news this week. We got word that Hawkeye is getting slid up slightly because they're doing a two-episode release on Thanksgiving Eve. Because we know that Disney Plus is going to start releasing things on Wednesdays. It seems to work out well for them. So, Wednesday, August... Uh, August. <laughs> November, <laughs> November 24th. I miss that warm weather. November 24th, we're getting... Two episodes of Hawkeye. I gotta be, I'm not really surprised that they're doing this for two reasons. The first being, they do tend to like to release multiple episodes of a new series at the same time to draw a little buzz. 
And based on what we're going to discuss in just a moment, I think they're also trying to kind of throw the fans of the MCU a little bit of a bone here. Well, I think it's that. I think it's also that this is a Christmas movie. So what better way than to launch it into the holiday season instead of making us wait for Christmas? Uh, But I think that's also, I don't say this often, a smart business move. Well, no, I say it often. I haven't said it often lately. I think if, especially if these cargo ships keep sitting in the middle of the ocean, you're going to be at a loss for gifts. If you're giving the gift of Disney Plus or thinking about it, this is a good way to entice you to do that for your kid as a gift or for your family as a gift. So I, I think they're being smart. I think it's a last ditch effort to wrangle in some subscribers before the end of the year. The rest of the MCU slate for next year and the following year has been pushed back. Ouch. And this does have to do with the production strike. I figured. I have been following this very closely. You have no idea. I know that they came to a resolution this weekend. Thank God. Uh, not that I'm working on a union show, but the, the snowball effect would have been devastating to this entire industry. So I kind of figured something was coming, but... Disney giveth, Disney taketh away. They gave us the campus, so now we're going to have to sit and wait for movies. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness will now be released on May 6th, 2022. Thor Love and Thunder, July 8th. Black Panther, November 11th. The Marvels has been pushed to February 17th, 2023. Not that it's in the MCU, but the new Indiana Jones movie has been pushed to June 20th of 23. And Ant-Man, the Quantum Mania film, the third of the Ant-Man movies, July 28th, 2023. So big time ripple effect. It's just amazing that it, it just seems like for some reason Hollywood just can't catch a damn break. Between the last year that that they had, really year and a half, and now with this threat of a strike, everything just keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. Like, I mean, I guess at this point, nothing is going to be released on time, so we're not ever really going to be on, like, anything that happens now is the new on time, because technically you're never going to be on time anymore. But yeah, man, it's just one blow after another for these filmmakers. No, and I mean... (laughs) It's not a surprise because just based on what I've been hearing, just from my own network and a company that I used to work with, there are so many projects that got greenlit this year that there just wasn't the budget for following the pandemic. So there are all these things that are are waiting to go into production and it's causing such a problem with jobs and finding your next project and there are just so many strange holding patterns that are a ripple effect so this is this is not a shock but the good news is is that they're coming we know that they're coming and they're coming to movie theaters which i think is the most important thing but we want to know what you have to say about 
the MCU news this week. How do you feel about these films being pushed back? How do you feel about Hawkeye being pushed up and getting two episodes on its release day? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to follow us on that social media. We're on TikTok as well at Monoreal Radio. We already gave you the email address. Make sure that you like and subscribe and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice for links to everything, the social media, the email address, the podcast. It is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.